0: Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way With Anoa
1: Welcome to another edition of The Way of Noah. I'm your hostess with the most Anyone remember Beetlejuice, the cartoon from back in the day? He's saying I'm the host with the most anyway, poor joke. But- here we are. I am really excited um, because I'm always get i always excited when I do my show because I always get to talk to amazing people doing amazing work. Um, and this is a really interesting topic. So some of you have, may have been following the news and the coverage of the criminal justice reform bill that has been working its way through Congress. Um, and there's been a little bit of controversy, probably more than a little bit of controversy around all of this. But I really appreciate the opportunity to have on someone who has experience in the field and has also been working around um, this legislation with a really interesting organization. And I'll allow her to talk some more about all of this great stuff. Um, So I'm going to kick it over to my guests because sometimes we are the best ones to introduce ourselves. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Just start with your name and organization and tell us a little about yourself. Sure.
0: Thank you so much, for having me host this with the Moses, I appreciate you and this opportunity um, my name is Topeka K Sam I am the founder and executive director of the ladies of hope ministries and also the director for the dignity campaign for incarcerated women for cut 50
1: awesome thank you so much so like um you just just I was watching actually one of I was actually I watched the video of you doing a TEDx uh, talk you know uh, mm. earlier talking about your story and how you got involved and stuff and you know this is something that I think for a lot of us particularly you know for people in the African American community here in the States considering just our relationship as an entire community you No, know, y'all I know we not a monolith but a lot of us regardless of our different you know backgrounds and experiences you have either personal experiences or immediate family member and friend experiences with the criminal justice system, right? And we have a lot of thoughts and feelings around this. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the work you've been doing? Um, as yeah, let's just talk a little bit first about some just some of the work that you've been doing, kind of in this field.
0: No, for sure. So um, let me start by just I guess adding to your statement about everyone has an impacted loved one or someone who's been incarcerated. Um, in- in our communities and as a matter of fact there was a report that just came out the other day um i believe it was from forward.us that stated that one in every two families has had a loved one who's experienced incarceration so that's like huge and then there was a report that came out that said one in every four women have experienced or have a loved one who's experienced incarceration and so for me it was due to my incarceration that had me get into the field and get into the work um, that I'm doing with my organization and And from the things that I saw um, inside prisons, the, the lack of personal hygiene products, the lack of resources and opportunity, no educational programming. I mean, they told us for continuing, adult continuing education courses, uh, work to knit and crochet. And as you know, and I know that that is not a marketable skill that will help anyone and transforming their lives and be able to have a livable wage that'll actually allow them to have safe and affordable housing and begin to rebuild their life, more or less, get their children back and rebuild their life. And so, you know, all of these things, the sexual trauma, violence, and abuse that women were inflicting, the lack of resources that women, because we were left out of the conversation, that when I came home, myself and my co-founder of Hope House, we decided to open a safe housing space for women and girls who were coming home from incarceration. Um, to, buy, to provide them with a, a fresh start in a safe, beautiful space. And then from there, we connect women with access and opportunities through high-quality education, spiritual empowerment, training and development, advocacy training and development, and also um, leadership. And then when I work with Cut 50 what we do is we specifically focus on legislation to make sure the conditions of confinement are more humane for women. And so... I mentioned, you know, making sure women have their own personal hygiene products at no cost to them. Making sure, and when I say personal hygiene, I mean tampons and pads. And, you know, by the way, that we actually have to pass legislation to make sure that this is happening in this country. is, is disgusting. We make sure that we are trying to keep families unified by making sure that they're within a 500-mile driving radius opposed to sending people hundreds and hundreds of miles away from their families and their children. <laughs> making sure that men cannot come into our spaces uh, while we're unemployed without announcing themselves because, as I stated before, that women, 85% of all women who are incarcerated have been victims of sexual trauma and violence. And when you have a man who you don't know, who's coming into an area where you're not exposed, these are triggers and things that do not um, sustain a healthy, healthy mental health and only can harm you. And so what we've done is passed eight pieces of legislation on the state level in the last... Um, 10 months since February, which is huge because it's been also led by other formerly incarcerated women on the ground who've experienced these these same things, as well as ending the shackling of women during child labor, and also making sure women are not put in solitary confinement just because they're pregnant. And when the original legislation, which was federal legislation, um, did not yet, or didn't have an opportunity to pass, what we did was we added those same dignity provisions into the First Step Act. So that way that we knew that, I mean, we were confident that with the fight that we would push and that there were legislation on prison reform that was going to happen. We had to make sure that women were included in that legislation. Thank you. I
1: appreciate that that background. And I I, I really, the, the, the piece you were talking about in terms of, you know, focusing on women in these, in these, in this legislation, I mean some folks might think well you know what's the big deal like making sure you know people have certain you know rights or benefits or that we have reform you know if it benefits everyone but i think the things that you highlight in the very particular ways in which women are impacted in the system absolutely needs to be highlighted segmented and address in address and the ways that you laid out. Um, one of the things that I also thought was really, you know, great that you noted in terms of, you know, personal hygiene products, particularly, um, when we are on our cycles, uh, you know, I've, I've read different articles, but I was really proud of an effort in Arizona that a friend of mine, I'm state representative. Um, she younger state representative that she, she, uh, helps lead the push for, for getting more, you know, access to sanitary, you know, napkins and products while, um, you know, women are incarcerated because it's, it's, it's horrific, the conditions and I can't, I don't have to tell you, you know, but it's horrific the conditions that women are subjected to. And the fact that there isn't a national standard for this um, is really disheartening and dismaying. So with, 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 with the work around the, fir- the first step act and um, just your work with Cut 50 and your work with your organization can you just talk to talk to us just some of, about some of the the the, 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 uh, the points that that lead you to supporting it right because there is a lot of critique still even with the, the updates and revisions that have happened there is still a lot of critique about it that it doesn't go far enough and it doesn't do enough can you just talk to us a little bit more about some of the provisions that you found um, through your work that are you know a step in the right direction.
0: Well, before, I mean, let me start with before the provisions or the, the new additions were added to the legislation, I supported it from, a, from the very beginning. Why? Because I was one of the people who were at the table from the beginning, understanding that opposed to opposing legislation that didn't seem like it had any depth of breath, that I would need to be engaged in that conversation to making sure that the things that were in the legislation were there. And so, working with Cup 50, we who supports and uplifts and makes sure that directly impacted leaders are not even at the table, but also leading the conversation, that we were there from the beginning. And so, again, I named all of the dignity provisions that were in there, which for me is near to dear my heart based on, based on my experiences, but also for me, making sure that formally Incarcerated people like myself have the opportunity to go inside back in the prison and actually mentor and teach, uh, quick, teach re entry courses and classes that can help our sisters and brothers that we left behind because we know what each other needs, which is huge. Um, also making sure that good time credit is actually implemented appropriately because, unfortunately, um, the, the good time credit system, which has been there for some time, people have not been getting the time that they should have gotten off, and so with this legislation, it goes back and recalculates the time credit because that part of it is retroactive and it will bring c- close to 4,000 people home who have been sitting in prison. And for me, you know, these things are extremely important educational programming, pouring more money into educational programming, mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, things right now. And again, this is focused on the federal system right now. I was in federal federal prison for three years. And I understand that there were none of these things offered to me while I was inside, right? And so you have people who've been sitting in prison for 20, 30 years who, even though some of because of the census laws right now where people have life imprisonment and we are still working on more steps to change that as well, that people want to see people get some relief while sitting in prison. So just those are just a few provisions that for me in the in the very beginning just had me very excited because I could remember sitting in prison and hearing about legislation that just passed that people would pack their bags and give away their clothes because they knew that they were going to be able to get to relief. And then to come to find out that it didn't help them at all. And to see the devastation, the disappointment, the lack of hope, the deep depression that would be inflicted upon my people. You know, I know that being a part of this is going to be different, and I'm just excited to see that we're at a final step to potentially be able to see a victory on this. I mean, I, I, I think that's really
1: important to just think about and reflect um, in terms of the people that it will benefit, right? Like, I was reading somewhere earlier when we were talking about making sure that good time um, credit is actually applied appropriately. like. There's a lot that if you don't directly work with people who are impacted or have not also been impacted and understand how these policies work, like this is just jargon to some of us, right? But but I think what you were saying about making sure that, you know, the fact, because I was reading that it's like an extra week of good time credit that can be added on. Um, and and the people are able eligible to earn and like uh, one article I was reading was saying something like that. While while a week might not seem like a lot, when you think about the fact that it's retroactive, there are thousands. it's like I think it's upwards of four thousand people who this would directly benefit.
0: Again, that's right. And you think about yeah. I mean a day is a day is a day when you're sitting in a cage. Do you understand? And what's so disheartening and has been for me through this fight is that people who actually lived in a cage, like myself, would fight against seeing relief for some of the people. And furthermore, you know, many, the federal system is a smaller system than the the larger system of state, uh, state and city incarceration. Yet, many people who have been fighting against the legislation never actually spent time in federal prison, right? And it is a very different system. Um, and when we look at the war on drugs, we look at the mandatory minimum sentences. We look at the fact that it took both parties to get us into this this this, this heinous. Uh, this, I don't even have the word right now because it's actually triggering, triggering my spirit now. Um, it's it got us into this place that it's going to take both parties to get us out of this. And as you stated, and the, the name of the legislation is, it, it, there couldn't be one that was more fitting. First step right? I haven't seen a first step to any of the, any legislation. And in the last, I would say, 20 years, everything has brought more harm. I know that through this first step, and because of the activists and advocates who are on the ground doing the work, along with our allies at CUP60 and other great organizations, that there will be a second and hopefully a last step, right? And the last step we hope to be able, to decrease the rate, cut the prison population in half, end crime, and be able to keep our families together, and really change what's happening in this country.
1: Yeah, I definitely appreciate that because, and I think that's something that everyone can agree upon, regardless of where people fall right now with this legislation. I think making sure that there are improvements so that you know we do not have justice delayed and further denied for several more decades, right? And we don't want to mm-hmm. see. You know, legislation that will, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you know, create longer term, you know, harms. Um, I think that when we're, when we're looking at this and thinking about what a second step could look like, like if you were visioning policy that could be the next level to this, what would that look like if you have some thoughts to share?
0: What I'm going to be pushing for and working on is to reinstate federal parole. Mm. That's one part of legislation. Um, because if we reinstate federal parole, we put a sentencing cap or term limit on sentences. So no longer will there be life imprisonment for maybe 30 years and people have an opportunity to come home. I would love to see that happen. So my sisters and brothers, like William Underwood, Michelle West, um, Bernetta Willis, um, and Mr. Rucker, and so many others that I see to on a regular basis, will have the opportunity to come home and don't have to die in prison. Um, that is one piece of federal legislation that needs to change. What also needs to change is they need to have retroactivity in some of the, um, additional legislation, you know, past legislation. I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see some, some efforts on probation and parole. You know, that's another system of incarceration that we fail to look at. There's presently 4.7 million people who are under surveillance in this country today. And we need to understand that that is another form of incarceration or oppression on community, and specifically communities of color. And how can we begin to to get people off of uh, their term, long terms of probation and parole? You know, we look at even aging people in prison. You know, God bless Brother Fareed, who worked with RAP in New York and working for for years, even after his imprisonment to make sure that we can get people out of prison sooner um, who have met a certain age and, who, you know, they're either, even poor health care. And so, you know, we, we just have to continue to look at other systems and see what's possible. Just like when I was over in Germany and Norway, look at our people as people who may have made a mistake, but that does not mean that that mistake should cost them their lives or should cost their family their lives, right? And then I would also like to just see how we can begin to create alternatives to incarceration, how we can have community-based programs, how we can put funding back into the communities and into the people who are being marginalized. And I think, you know, that's a lot, but I think that it's each one of us who have worked so hard to, to change this initial piece of legislation. I feel like we all come together at the very beginning at the table and look to see what the next steps will. I think that everyone will be able to together and be proud of the bill that they how have some depth and breadth and can really change the lives of not only the people who are most impacted, but the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And, um, <laughs> I really appreciate the point, too, about the state system because we do, you know, and we have a lot of folks, you know, people who do, like, prison abolition work and work in other areas of this who do take a look at the state system. But I do think that a lot of times we get heavily fixed at it on the federal level, which, rightfully so, there's there's work to be done there. But that, like you said, that isn't the largest, you know, you know, uh, uh, segment when we're talking about our prison population and cutting um, those who are unnecessary incarcerated you know but i also think another part of that too is like i just remember when there was all the hoopla around um you know getting rid of private prisons at the federal level and we saw that ultimately there were very few private there's a very small portion of federal prisons private prisons to begin with they were mostly on the immigration and enforcement side with the private contractors and that wasn't touched at all and you know i think that they is a lot of space for all of us to continue to work in through some of these areas, even if we don't all necessarily agree on a particular strategy, that ultimately we do all agree that using these different methods and means of incarceration, incarcerating people, which unfortunately in some instances end up uh, being akin to, to, to mass warehousing without access, you know, to, to the utilities and, and resources necessary to exist as, as human beings. I mean, I, I don't, I don't really understand where the mentality comes from that somehow because someone has quote unquote committed a crime that they're now no longer worthy of you know, human decency and respect in terms of, you know, the accessibility and resources you were talking about earlier regarding the women you advocate for. Um, what are some of your final thoughts just about this, not just this criminal justice reform bill, but just what we need to be focusing on in terms of criminal justice reform generally?
0: We need to be bold in our ask. We need to be bold in how we're looking to decarcerate and change the system. And and I think the reason why there's been so much interest is because, one in every two people have experienced a family member who's been incarcerated and no longer is a problem of just their problem right or um you know when you think about substance misuse and you know the opioid ad- epidemic that all of a sudden has come and people are getting you know are starting to look at you know substance issues as a as a um as a, a public health issue where our communities communities of color have been impacted by crack cocaine and heroin with for decades, and we were being criminalized and put in the prison for it. So I think that the, the, when, when things that are happening are beginning to affect everyone, I think that's when the interest comes in. And I think that it's everyone's individual responsibility to hold their local elected officials accountable, that you make sure that the issues that you want to bring your family members home are being held and being raised, and if not, that you do what you need to do to make sure that that's changed. You know, I think that more people in our communities who are impacted need to run for public office. I feel like, you know, we need to begin to really, really focus and and look at the people who have been impacted first, who are doing the work, and pour into those community-based organizations, the small organizations that have been doing work for decades, um, who need that help and support. And also get guidance from people who have been impacted. Because again, and you know, I can't stress that enough, because we lived it, we know what would need to happen in order to change it.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's dope. Really, really appreciate you, sis, for, for jumping on today with me and, and chopping up about this. Um, you know, can you let folks know how they can learn more about your work, where they can find you get in touch with you on social media or just like, just your organizational website or just anyone you want to shout out in particular before we close out.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much again for this opportunity. Um, my social media, all of my social media platforms are, is my name, Topeka K. Sam, T-O-P-E-K-A-K-S-A-M. Topeka K. Sam. My website is the, L-O-H-M-T-H-E-L-O-H-M.org. Um, my work with Cut 50 is, is at dignityacts.org, D-I-G-N-I-T-Y, Act, dot org. And I hope to hear from anyone, please get involved, you know, sign up. And if you want to learn more about the first, you can go to firststepact.org as well. Excellent. Thank
1: you. You guys stay tuned. I got more coming up next. Peace. I'm back and following up, just continuing our conversation about the First Step legislation and First Step Act and some of the work being done by various orgs. And today, you know, I've got a chance to talk to some folks connected to Cut 50, which some of you may be familiar with as, you know, an organization um, that was launched by Van Jones. But I'm joined right now really... You know, it's it's pretty cool, the people you get connected to by way of other good people who do good work. So I'm joined today by um, Louis Reed, and who's a national organizer with Cut 50. And Louis, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time out, especially while you're traveling, um, to have this conversation.
2: Yeah, the, uh, the pleasure's all mine. And I just wanted to uh, just kind of like toss in there, uh to your di- to your listeners in the event if you hear something in my background it is not god it is not the apocalypse <laughs> uh, i am on the train from connecticut to dc uh, continuing to push this federal legislation and um hopefully we can get the first step back literally over the finish line
1: awesome thank you so much um again for like i said joining me literally while you're in transit uh, so talk to me a little bit about just just you and your role As national organizer and kind of if you could just share with us a little bit of what brought you to this, this work in this organization.
2: Sure. So uh, my name is Lewis L. Reed. I'm the national organizer as introduced uh, for Cut 50. uh, I'm a licensed clinician in the state of Connecticut, specializing in in substance abuse disorders. but beyond both of those things, as mentioned, uh, I'm also 13959014. And for those of you who are listening uh, to this to this broadcast, uh, that is not the next Powerball numbers, though I wish it were. It's actually my federal registration number. Um, I served nearly 14 years in federal prison, and it was during my time of incarceration that I saw two things. One, I saw that there were a significant not even as significant. I think that there was an overrepresentation of Black, brown, and poor white people who were criminally um, prosecuted excessively, and they were, dis- they were disproportionately sentenced. And the second thing is, is that a notion developed that I would learn later on in life, that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often furthest from resources and power. So what I wanted to be able to do is I wanted to be able to enact and execute solutions to the problems that I had attributed to uh, and be able to bridge those solutions to those people who were were and are in positions of power, privilege, and authority. Uh, So that is how I landed literally at, at, at Cut 50. Uh, I've held several positions uh, in my professional career during the five, almost five years that I've been released from uh, incarceration. Uh, those positions have included being a policy manager uh, for the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice for the state of Connecticut. Um, I was a case manager as well. Uh, I was a program manager for a permanent housing supportive program that uh, assisted people who were returning from incarceration with public substance vouchers and the likes thereof. And I also had a position in uh, city government as well, where I functioned as the uh, reentry director uh, for the city of Bridgeport before I had to leave that position under fire as a result of being rearrested uh, for child support related issues that accrued while I was incarcerated.
1: Wow. Um, thank you so much for sharing that uh, about your background and experience. And and thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that experience. That's, a, that's heavy. So, just thinking about the First Step Act, uh, I talked with like a Said Topeka earlier a little bit about this and and her what brought her to this work and her perspective. Can just there has there's a lot of discussion <laughs> um, around it and there are concerns that because there is so much vocal support from Republicans, from the president, other folks that there's something at its core wrong with moving forward. Uh, with pushing for this. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is it about this work or not this, but not about this work, what is it about this legislation that has brought you to supporting it and advocate for it and and, and what do you say to possibly to critics who, who challenge
2: whether or not this should be something that moves forward? I'll start with the latter first. Um, I think that when I got involved in this work uh, specifically around the First Step Act what it did was it increased my literacy of my male privilege and what I mean by that on the reform side of this bill, you have the prohibiting and shackling of women who are pregnant while they are incarcerated. You would think that from a human point of view that we would not need literally an act of Congress in order to be able to do so. And yes, there is an existing policy within the Bureau of Prisons that you would also think would prohibit that. However, we know with policy that is subject to change depending on who is in the position of power. So This bill would actually prohibit the shackling of women while they are pregnant and incarcerated. It would prohibit the placing of of women who are pregnant in solitary confinement simply because they are pregnant. It would also increase uh, good time from 47 to 54 days a year for those people who are currently in, inca- who are currently incarcerated. The Bureau of Prisons, as it stands now, they actually calculate uh good time in a way that is not prescribed by Congress. So we want to be able to correct that. And we want to be able to remedy that through, uh, legislation. Uh, I think that also that is on par in order of importance is it's going to unlock education access to approximately 16,000 people who are currently waitlisted for literacy, basic literacy, GED testing, and vocational training, I think that you and also your listeners know that the more that you are educated, the more probability that you have for success when you are released from a term of imprisonment. And while it doesn't make you impervious to issues that very well could land you back in prison, I think that it actually reduces the probability, the statistical probability of that happening. So that's on the prison reform side. On the sentencing reform side, it is going to uh, be able to... Allow those people who, back in 2010, were ineligible to receive remedy under the crack cocaine offense. This is going to allow those people uh, to be released from well, which is approximately about 35 uh, to 4,000 uh, people. And I, I think that that's significant. Uh, and without getting into the other uh, provisional minutiae of uh, of the bill, I think that there are other key provisions on the sentencing reform side that will be able to alleviate front end. Uh, reform for those people who very well uh, may find themselves in a federal court role. I'm quick to say that people who commit crimes are not the worst of a mistake that they have demonstrated. They are not a regrettable decision that they have made. They are human beings and human beings are allowed to change. We are allowed to to, you know, we have the the dexterity, we have the the uh, the fluidity, and we're also dynamic in nature. And we should be allowed the, the 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 access and the rehabilitative process to change, whether that is you know from a criminal past, whether that is from substance abuse, whether that is you know from being a philanderer or or not necessarily making prudent decisions uh, in other areas of your life that didn't necessarily place you in a six by nine sell. So I think that this bill is one of the few bipartisan efforts that you are going to see Reverend Al Sharpton and President Trump stand on the same side of the issue, uh, saying that this should happen. uh, It has to happen. And it's long overdue um, that it hasn't happened
1: to your point about it being long overdue. I mean, there has not been major criminal justice reform in this country in decades. And that major prior reform was to our collective detriment, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, people of, you know, people of color, low-income communities. Um, so the, the, the measures um, that are, they're being proposed um, definitely move the needle somewhat for, for many um so what do you say to critics you know um there are those that are concerned that either it doesn't go far enough or delays the opportunity for increased reform or people who are concerned because you know Donald Trump and other people are supporting it what do you say you know as you're doing your advocacy and outreach and work around the bill to you know for some of your colleagues who are, who do have that concern um you know about you know some of these issues that have come up around the bill
2: well I don't think that I don't think that people who dissent on this bill, I don't think that their their dissent is misplaced. I think that we got to where we are because we needed the robust <laughs> opinions of those who are uh, in opposition to this bill saying that this bill doesn't go far enough. We needed, uh, you know, that corner saying, hey, this bill needs to be strengthened. It needs to be more muscular. It needs to not be as skeletal uh, as it was. Uh, So we need that, you know, in every movement, you need creative tension, you need creative conflict in order to be able to push uh, an agenda ahead. So I think that that was definitely uh, something um, that was, a welcome uh, voice of dissent for this particular bill. Uh, to answer your question as to whether or not this bill goes far enough, well, you just led into that question with a statement that there hasn't been significant reform in you know almost a decade. And when you think about where this bill is, it's going much farther than what we have gotten in the last ten years. Uh, and the bill, in in and of itself as it is named, it is the first step act. It is not the final step act. It is literally a first step in the right direction in order to be able to undo and remedy a lot of the draconian issues that have disproportionately impacted communities of color. So for those people who say that this bill doesn't go far enough, or those people who say that this bill is distrustful because President Trump is aligned to this bill, I would you know, refer to you to history. And I will refer you to the 1960s Civil Rights Act, where MLK and the other interested people of that era had to work with an openly hostile and an openly uh, bigoted president uh, through LBJ that didn't preclude going to the negotiating table with the Department of Justice. It didn't preclude them from going into the White House uh, to really vet these things out. So, yes, uh, I believe that I stand on 99 percent of the issues uh, uh, with President Trump from the opposite end of the spectrum. But I also think and I was just raised right. uh, My grandmother used to tell me, you know, when you disagree with people, you have an obligation to stand up and say how much you disagree with them on when you do agree with people, just because you disagree with them on 99% of the issues, you have a moral obligation to say, you know something on this issue, you are right. And on all of these other issues, you're absolutely wrong.
1: You can never, what do you, what do you say when you when you hear some wise words from a grandma? Like, I just think about my own in the way she would kind of encourage on how to resolve and think about issues. And it's like, there are these moments, because I'm, I'm sure you have heard this a lot from folks in terms of the work that you've been doing in some of the rooms and people you've probably had to sit with uh, uh, doing this organizing and doing this work. And like, how do you reconcile that, right? Like when you're, when you're moving in these different spaces and in these different rooms to be able to get to a, a common ground, because that's something that's really lacking, Right. Like, I mean, we haven't seen common ground reached in, I don't know, probably over a decade as well. Right. Like we have not seen that happen in so long and, and really um, in, in, in like modern political times. It's been very infrequent. So how do you navigate those those spaces in these moments to bring about uh, the needed changes to, you know, something like the First Step Act?
2: I think that you do that with prayer um, you know unapologetically I'm Christian so you know first and foremost you know I, I I consult with my Lord right and you do there are certain things that are metaphysical um, there's certain things that you need literally need the power and the persuasion of heaven in order to be able to be able to move so you know when I walk into a space it's not necessarily me who's in that space uh, I believe that it is it is the power of love it is the you know a capacity of, of good will and it's also the, the the strength of those of my my so-called constituents right the the, the muted voices of the more than two hundred thousand people who are incarcerated in our federal bureau of prisons i bring those people into that room uh with me uh and i also believe in the goodwill of others right yes people may be polo- politically motivated and yes they may do the right things for their own reasons but ultimately i think that their greater uh uh good in conscience is going to prevail. You can't tell me that, you know, no matter how staunch of an opponent that you may be uh, uh, on criminal justice and nor how, you know, right wing you may be uh, on issue, you can't tell me that you are going to go down to the Senate floor and you are going to press no and keep women who are incarcerated uh, and pregnant shackled to the side of a gurney. You can't tell me that your conscience is not going to prod you and that you're going to get a restful sleep at night. So when I walk into spaces where, you know, you have people who are staunch proponents of whatever their uh, position is on this, that very well may be diametrically in opposition to where we stand on it, I believe that goodwill is going to prevail. And I believe that history has ridden as written, I should say uh, that, you know, love when you lead in love and when you lead in morality and when you lead in goodwill, you're always going to stand on the right side of the issue. And the, the issue is always going to stand on the right side of you.
1: One of the things that Tipique and I had talked about when we, when we spoke had to do with like just some of the benefits, right? Like some of the things like, you know, some people are like, oh, this only, you know, helps this many people. There's still like the broader context of all the work that we still have to do. But what I do think it is important to highlight is, what what is actually in the bill, right? Like some of the things that do actually the type of relief that that could be provided to folks. Can you just talk to a little bit about what? Because one of the things that I, you know, when speaking and I were talking we're talking about like earn time credits, right? Like, like just some of these like real particular nuanced things that the average person that doesn't directly have experience in these systems might not actually understand the value or importance of because like some of this, a lot of this stuff is retroactive. Whereas in the past, um, you know, legislation had not been retroactive. I think it was what like fair, what was it? Fair sentencing. I can't remember exactly the name, but like in 2009 there was legislation passed that looked at, the disparities in sentencing but it was not retroactive. And this would go back and make that sentencing retroactive, recognizing, you know, the, the, the abysmal failure that was the war on drugs and looking at the disparities in crack and cocaine sentencing because there are still people in jail that have or who are incarcerated who are being negatively impacted from um, desperate sentencing from, you know, years ago. Um, another thing that I was reading about was just like some of, you know, the benefits in terms of like earned time credits and how like it increases. I think it's like a different Difference of like a week, and and like one of the articles I was reading was saying like even though it seems like it might seem like it's only a week, and somebody might say oh it's only a week, but that is cumulative and it adds up. And so if you're retroactively applying that to people, that can make all the difference with them being able to like walk out the door, you know, so much sooner, you know, because of this legislation passing. So um, I, you know, you guys like I left a whole bunch right there, but but Lewis, can you just talk to me a little bit about you know some of the things that that stand out for you in the bill that are that are benefit.
2: Yeah. So, you know, like you mentioned, right, the earn good time credits, uh, not only not only will that be able to allow people to get home sooner, um, whether that's placing community corrections otherwise known as a halfway house or whether it's going to uh, place people on uh, electronic monitoring. People in prison want to be home with their families. Fathers want to be home with their children. Mothers want to be reunited with their children. Uh, children want their parents home back with them, right? And siblings want to be able to have their their family members at the dinner table uh, during Thanksgiving. And, you know, they want to be able to present them gifts uh um, you know, for Christmas rather than sending them 50 or hundred dollars on the commissary. So, uh, when you talk about programming, you know, programming is programming for me was something that was, you know, literally a key to my success. Uh, I, great privilege of earning not just a a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, but I also earned my master's degree in clinical counseling while I was incarcerated. And even with all of those degrees, right, like my grandmother, we used to say, you can have more degrees than a thermometer, and you can still make, you know, ill decisions, and you can still uh, find yourself in situations. And even having all of that, you know, that didn't preclude me from being rearrested uh, approximately 18 months ago. So when I'm talking about, you know, access to education, and when we're talking about, you know, having these people, uh, you know, just be able, being able to be far much more literate than what they were, um, this is about not allowing the genius that those who are incarcerated federally should just be squandered. Uh, And the programs are important so that not only, yes, there's an incentive to programs so that you can be home and closer to your family and uh, you you can uh, uh, re-engage in your communities far much more sooner than you would be. Otherwise, if you did not program, uh, but I also think that these programs have a, a higher level of self-benefit and self-satisfaction uh, for individuals who are incarcerated. And I think also as well, it unlocks the door for people like me to be able to go back into institutions and facilitate courses, to be able to teach courses, maybe you know, uh, as an adjunct professor, or you know, just to be able to curate uh, anger and criminal and addictive uh, thinking, or anger management, or something to that degree. Whereas now the decision to have someone who has been previously convicted of an offense uh, is sole, solely at the discretion of, of, the, of the warden, which could, you know, uh, create implicit bias uh, and, and, and a warden may not necessarily take into account dynamic factors uh, in terms of post release a success rather than simply just looking at a criminal history
0: so just moving
1: forward and thinking about the work to be done right because this is what the name says it is the first step and we want to make sure it's not the only step right because one step is you know pretty useless without others you know leading leading towards a a higher goal what do you see as the work Beyond, you know, moving this forward, like what do you see that that, that as what needs to be done as you are thinking about the trajectory of you know criminal justice reform and next steps beyond this
2: legislation? Yeah, I think that next steps um, is is a matter of retroactivity on the other issues on the bill uh, to be able to re um, to introduce you know far more uh, comprehensive front end reform uh, to be able to ensure that there's you know uh, not just uh, access to education, but access to higher education, post-secondary education, right? Um, we should be discussing how can we re-implement the Pell Grants for people who are incarcerated federally. So, you know, as I think about the next steps and as I think about what the second step potentially could be, those are the things that immediately swell in my mind. So
1: thinking about like the work that people could get, in, like like there's a lot of us out here who want to support good work being done, want to support folks like you doing this work. What can people not directly organizing, such as yourself, but like, what can other people do if they want to find a way to get involved or support the work of organizers such as yourself, and making sure that criminal justice reform really does become a serious issue of the 21st century, and not just a "yay, we we passed this bill called First Step" type of thing. We did our duty, and another several decades goes goes by before we have anything else meaningfully done. Um, yeah, so like, what can people do? What like like just thinking about how we can get connected to work to make. sure that we help these next steps
2: occur. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, number one, you can get involved locally. Uh, there is a need on a local level. You need know, to speak to your city council. Uh, you should be up. You should. Your listeners should, should be looking at what employment uh, prohibitions are disenfranchising people who have uh, criminal convictions. Uh, things such as ban of box. Things such as uh, you know uh, licensure. Uh, you know, look, looking at moral turpitude laws on a local level for uh, licensure and or. Or, uh, vocational certification uh, on a larger scope you can get involved um, with our day of empathy uh, network we have annually every year we have um, uh, a national day of action in recognition uh, where we stand uh, coordinate I should say uh, in solidarity with all 50 states for people who, you know just to get involved locally whether that's on a local state or federal level lobbying their local legislatures uh, you know for a reform that specific to their community uh, or, you know, speaking to City Hall as to how, you know, c- city government can open up job opportunities for people with criminal histories. We've had uh, Kim Kardashian, we've had Common, we've had Alicia Keys and, you know, plurality of other, you know, Hollywood influencers uh, be involved in our in our day of empathy called to action. For sure. Um,
1: so just in closing, just thinking about just... Other work, or or just any final thoughts on first step on criminal justice reform, or any of the work that you've been doing with Cut Fifty that you'd like to share with our listeners? Things that people should be keeping in mind, and 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 where we can can find find out more about you and what you do.
2: Yeah. So uh, you guys can you know obviously you can get in contact with me on social media. You can follow me at on Twitter at Lewis L. Reed. Uh, and I'm also on Instagram at He Inspires the Number 4 Rail, Or you can just follow me uh, on Instagram at Lewis L. Reed as well. Um, but from an organization point of view, you can visit our website at cut50.org. Specifically, if you want to know more information around the First Step Act, you can go to firststepact.org. Uh, and you can see action steps that you can take to literally tweet uh, to your senator. All you have to do is put your zip code in and it will uh, compose a tweet to your senator saying that, hey, I'm in support of the First Step Act and I want you to move this uh, in order to give, you know, my cousins, my uncles, my neighbors, people who are going to be returning back to my community, a decent stand, uh, uh, a decent opportunity at survival.
1: Really, really appreciate that. I just, I just was just looking here. at just some more facts or whatever, and I just wanted to just before we close out because I read another question. Hit me, recording. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the provisions in terms of families being able to be kept closer together? Because I know you touched on it a little bit, but can you just just like drive that home again? Because I know so many of us, if if we ourselves have not been impacted, we have someone in our immediate no, no, no. lives. Many of us do who have been in some way. Whether I mean on the state level, but some of us do have folks who have been impacted on in, in, in terms of the federal system, and many of us do know what it is to be living in the South, but your loved one is actually somewhere out in Colorado or somewhere really far and difficult to get to. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about just like, you know, the provisions around making sure people are not far away from their family and how important that is?
2: Yeah. So uh, as it stands right now, the Federal Bureau of Prisons can literally ship you all across the country, which, you know, creates a uh, a financial uh, burden on families. It, you know, disengages people from their local communities and it tears at the fabric of, of, of families, quite honestly. So one of the provisions in this bill is that It would keep people who are incarcerated federally within 500 driving miles of their last known address. The current practice and policy for the Bureau of Prisons is that people are placed within 500 air miles of their last known address. So we want to make sure that people stay engaged uh, with their community as much as possible or as close to their community as much as possible. We want to make sure that they stay within proximity uh, to their families as much as possible so that, you know, they're Uh, pro-social skills are increased, uh, that, you know, the family unification um, can actually decrease incidents of violence uh, and uh, assaults within the institution, and uh, so that people can have uh, access uh, uh, to their communities.
1: (laughs) Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so I really appreciate you taking time. I know, like I said, you're, like we said in the beginning, you are traveling. So I appreciate you calling in and being patient, yo. Know, and I appreciate you all for listening and taking some time to learn a little bit more about the work of the folks over at Cut Fifty and the first the first step Act and what is you know been playing out in the media. I don't know how many people have been paying attention to it, but it is a very robust discussion that's happening. So. Louis, thank you so much for joining me and, and taking some time to talk about your work and sharing your story with us, as well as um, um, why this is something that needs, you know, maybe a second look beyond uh, some of the discussion that we've already been reading and, and, and hearing about. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: having me on. Really appreciate you. Have a good evening.
2: All right. Likewise.